Hello everyone, uh, this is Colin, uh, your main host for The Legend of Portalcast. I just wanted to do a quick shout out here at the very beginning to the Avatar The Last Airbender Discord server. Um, they have been super supportive, have been connecting us with people to uh, get more listeners to the podcast, and we just really appreciate uh, them and all of our other listeners who have been sharing this. We've been doing this only through word of mouth, so uh, it means a lot whenever you uh, tell someone about it. So thank you guys so much again, and uh, without any further delay, let's get on with uh, episode three, discussion on the waterbending scroll. Thanks, guys. So welcome back, guys. Uh, we are here now for our third episode, and uh, this week we're going to be talking all about episode nine from book one, The Waterbending Scroll. So I have a few co-hosts with me today. Actually, more than a few, I would say. This is we got a we got a good little group here. Um, so uh, joining us for the first time, one of our old co-hosts and dear friend of mine, Daniel. Hello. Right. Uh, and Daniel, because uh, you haven't joined us yet, uh, can you tell us just a little bit about a little bit about yourself and uh, how you uh, kind of got introduced to Avatar? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was your fault, actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> been uh, been a fan ever since high school, and I'm a huge fan of the writing that goes into the series and all the intricacies that they put in, and everything leads to everything else. Um, but uh, yeah, I live in the frozen northern wastes of America, and glad I could finally make it out for a podcast. Yeah, well, we're happy to have you. Um, so, uh, returning uh, this week, we have our favorite Dutch chicken, Kyle. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> and we also up, have <laughs> we also have Susan returning this week. So Jet was like kind of a bad guy, so I really don't care for him. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we'll be putting these into the episode, but uh, before we started recording, um, Susan's daughter was uh, giving us the lowdown on her thoughts about Avatar, and it was the most adorable thing in the world. <laughs> and uh, last start but not... him young, start him young, Colin. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and last but not least, uh, we have Casey. Hello, everybody. Good to be back. Nice. How have you guys been doing since uh, last time we recorded? Oh, my gosh. Busy, and but also watching Avatar, so it's good. Good balance. <laughs> now, Casey, I know you mentioned that uh, you've been watching it with Chris, uh, your boyfriend, for, uh, like, what, past couple months now? How's that been uh, going? Uh, it's It's been, like, uh, just, sh- again, I, we were saying this before, like, we were sh- sh- just sharing it with somebody who's never seen it for the first time um, is... 
such enlightening. It is enlightening. It's a, if it's if not too much to say that because it's like not only have I not seen it for a while, but like I'm picking up details I didn't see the first go around, the first couple go arounds, um, and it's like almost like seeing it with fresh eyes. Just like you know, they're seeing it with some you share it with somebody else, and uh, and just being able to kind of also work. It's now like we're all older and wiser watching it. Um, it's been just outrageous. And oddly enough, the first one because we had started watching it actually before we even worked this podcast a re- a revival even was a you know a, an idea and so we picked up where we left off and oddly enough we picked up the first one we started watching was the one we're talking about today was the waterbending scroll so that's oh. actually where we hmm. i was like amazed we're like oh we're talking about the one like where we re- literally picked up uh picked up where we left off so yeah so i'm stoked <laughs> very cool um so yeah, uh, you know, it's uh, been really cool. Uh, you know, we'll have uh, the second episode out uh, by this time uh, with this recording and everything. Um, and just uh, the support so far um, from old friends uh, kind of uh, reaching out and uh, people just, you know, talking to us about uh, listening to the podcast. I really appreciate you guys tuning in, uh, checking everything out. Um, it's just been so much fun to uh, not only record these, but go back and edit these. There's uh, a lot of old uh, tricks that you know i'm kind of remembering it's almost that kind of muscle memory feel of being like oh yeah it's like gotta get into this groove and then once that kind of gets in move on to that next stage of post-production and uh <laughs> but yeah and we appreciate the listeners for uh you know coping with us for the uh, first couple episodes as we kind of uh, get all of those kinks worked out but we're uh, we're feeling pretty good about all this moving forward yeah so we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and dive right into discussion with uh, the waterbending scroll. Um, so just uh, for our listeners, um, if you haven't seen it recently, um, obviously we encourage you always to go back and watch Avatar because, you know, why not? Because <laughs> <laughs> nothing better to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just in case you haven't, uh, kind of the overall synopsis of this episode, um, Aang, Katara, and Sokka uh, find themselves uh, in a small earthbending village uh, and kind of like a coastal town and they find a waterbending scroll uh, aboard a ship that has lots of curios. Uh, but it's actually a pirate What's ship. A curio? What curio? Is a curio obtained at a very reasonable price. The For, price free. For free. For <laughs> free. Uh, so they, they steal a waterbending scroll. Um, and uh, pirates chase after them. Uh, Zuko also chases after them. Aang and Katara learn uh, the water whip. And then uh, teamwork. And uh, humility in realizing, you know, being obsessed over certain things isn't the best uh, saves the day. Uh, so, yeah, uh, guys, what do you think? Like, what was uh, your experience revisiting this episode? Hey, fun this fact. Was... Fun fact that Bejeweled Monkey shows up like four more times in the Avatar series. Yes. If anyone's like, oh, really? Anyone's what? Curious, like, yeah. Yes. So, like, my sure. husband and I and Emily were watching the show and we're watching through my five year old and she pointed out, she's like, mommy. Bejeweled monkey, and like every time it showed up, and I was like, "Oh my god, it does show up! It shows up in the most ran. It shows up in like the Sandbander episode." Yep, yep. And I was it's... like, "What is that? What? That the show does that? It, it there's other. I know there's other series that do that. I think Arrested Development does that. Oddly enough, yeah. other series where they allude back to things, not only things that are relevant." But also just like little like almost like Easter eggs and that monkey. You're, I I just realized that the other day. I saw it in another episode. And I was like, oh yeah, that's from, <laughs> that's the thing from the pirate ship. And yes, uh, yes, yeah. 
Okay, I want to I want to take a quick detour here, really quick. I want to I want to do a very short like power theme segment here. Uh, I want to hear from each of you uh, off the top of your head a crazy theory as to what that monkey represents and <laughs> what it is in this Avatar universe. So, Daniel, you go first. Don't start with me. <laughs> start with the one that noticed it. Come on. Okay, okay, okay. That, that, that's 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 fair. To think. That's fair. All right. So, uh, yes, uh, Susan, you go ahead. What's what's your theory? Well, the bejeweled monkey is quite rare in many parts of Fire Nation lore. But what? It could just be a bejeweled monkey, like the Cabbage Man, everywhere you go. So you know, I'm talking like Iroh. I don't even know what the hell. I'm saying. <laughs> so, so your theory is just it's always just kind of lurking there in the background and always just kind of like it's present, even though if we can't see it. Exactly, it's always <laughs> just there, kind of, kind of like, kind of like whenever you go anywhere and they're like, "Look at these great wanted posters." Yeah, <laughs> just creeping, just trolling. You know, it's just there. All right, it's just one of those. It's just one of those inside jokes. It's like yeah. a cabbage shit, man. You know, it's exactly. just, only we, only we get the cabbage joke. Only we get the visual monkey. Yeah. Okay. It's just well, one of those inside jokes. So, uh, Kip, what's what is uh, what, what's your what's your crazy theory on the monkey? I have no idea. Honestly. <laughs> um, <laughs> you probably forgot the monkey shows up. <laughs> oh, you, you know, actually, this is the first time we've seen it, right? Yes, and we've seen pirates have it now. I I don't I, I remember seeing it in other episodes. I'm just not clear on the details, but maybe it's like the White Lotus style said uh, signifies that you're part of the White Lotus Club. So maybe the Bijou Monkey is that you're part of like the pirate or like the the, the mafia in the Avatar world. That's cool. I, I like love that. that. <laughs> I love that. That's that's great. <laughs> Oh man. Okay, Casey, you're up next. Um, I mean, realistically, I think it's just like I said, like an Easter egg kind of thing. That's just fun. Um, but for a crazy theory, I would actually would love to know if it was like maybe a, a creature from the spirit realm that keep because you have those that keep re- recurring throughout the series. So maybe it was like a statue or representation of uh, some freaky monkey creature from the spirit world, which would be super cool. And I just wanted to even know the story of how the pirates even obtained it because they got a lot of really um like key stuff from different places like the scroll so it's like i'm wondering like maybe that came from like a temple and that was like a spirit animal and i don't know that's my theory on that mm, deadly <laughs> creepy spirit monkey or bringer of good tea <laughs> yes, all right or tea <laughs> all right daniel last one's on yeah, you i was i was actually thinking along the same lines it was like a totem animal kind of thing and you know it shows up at opportune moments where gang has you know an opportunity to make um leaps in their judgments and and their perceptions of the world and it it's maybe because like the spirit of wisdom and understanding or something like that i dig it i love it (laughs) there's definitely a reason why iroh liked it Unless he's just being silly, but like it's interesting. I mean, it would be great it is for Iroh. music night. <laughs> <laughs> All 
so yeah, so listeners, um, if you want to uh, next time, uh, either uh, tweet us, tweet at us, or uh, send us an email at legendofportalcast at gmail and let us know what your theory was or whose theory you liked best. Hashtag bejeweled monkey. <laughs> <laughs> We're really trying for that audience engagement, guys. So help us out here. <laughs> engagement. We should just have the Patrick Stewart going back to a soundboard. And have Patrick Stewart going engage. You know. <laughs> Make it so. Make it so. Make it so. <laughs> All right. Uh, so now that we've uh, kind of diverted back uh, from that little uh, that little avenue there, uh, just uh, general thoughts on revisiting uh, this episode. Last time we were, when I was here, the, that was episode one of podcast. We were talking about what got us into Avatar, and I remember I revisited the story of how I got into Avatar, and I was like, I couldn't remember, but I remember now. This was the episode that got me into Avatar. This was it. It's awesome. This, this was the episode that got me into Avatar. I mean, to be fair, uh, it's like the greatest episode. It's got pirates, a crazy. <laughs> A waterbending, so a pair, a pair, a weird parrot. Um, oh, that's so cool! Firebending, a, a scary monkey, the, the cabbage man, the cabbage man, man. <laughs> right? Well, also, <laughs> the the animation in this episode is so well done. If you ask yeah. me, hmm. the the fighting animations in this, it's it's amazing. I was looking, I, I was watching the episode earlier. It's like the animation is just fantastic. Yeah. Like it, it 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 starts off. When, when they when they find the the river with the waterfall, right? It it starts off there, and you you see you see Sokka just like, oh okay, and you have Hang and Katara just looking their eyes like, oh wow, this is amazing. Just that scene in itself already captures the whole animation bit. I think I concur with that. The animation, even this the scene, um, just that comes right to right to mind is that whole scene where they're fighting the pirates. It was that whole smoke screen. And just with that, mm-hmm. that the how right when great. when when the pirate runs up the the the, the funky pirate the curious pirate he runs up and he starts throwing those smoke bombs. I thought that was so well done. It was amazing seeing him run up, you know, throwing throwing the the smoke bombs like he's some sort of a ninja, you know. Going back to the episode, I was kind of in the same boat here. I would, this is probably one of the first episodes that really hooked me in. Because um, one of the things I was interested in, um, aside from the writing, like I mentioned earlier, was the the attention to all the martial arts that they were involving. And this is really one of the first episodes where we get to see, you know, step by step how that breaks down, how these movements apply to water bending, and um, just the fact that they have them all illustrated out on this scroll, and then that makes water move. It was so astounding that they had put that level of detail into you know such a simple thing where somebody else could just go oh it's magic and it works because they're like no this is why it works and you have to do these motions and you have to breathe this way and shift your weight this way and it was astounding really Mm. that's a really good point like yeah to see that for the first time yeah, because this is also one of the first episodes i think when they actually go in depth about that and then Ang explained mm. where, where that the little part where Ang explains like, no, you have to shift your weight like this, and that's kind of when you get hooked. And you're like, wow, there's they actually put thought into this. Like, yeah. there's something behind yeah. this. 
And it's interesting, too, because I I think what really uh, the great success of this episode, too, is that uh, and why they probably ran it a lot on uh, television as well is that because I know this one and Jet are like two of the biggest ones that they would run on TV uh, like the most consistently. And I think because Mm -hmm. uh, this episode especially has a lot of uh, has a lot of moments that really harken back to the original pilot. Um, which is, you know, them, they have, they like, they, I know they steal something or they have something and they're being chased. Um, and they're like, the three of them actually are on the glider together, uh, in a very similar way of when Aang kind of fly, they fly out of the market and Aang tells them to hop on. So, you know, there's a lot of very similar imagery and I think they were kind of building on that and saying, okay, what did we do very well in this pilot and let's institute it into this episode? Um, and yeah, dude, the, the, I mean, the, the, I'm so glad you brought that up, Daniel, because that the the scroll, the illustrations are beautiful. And I mean, heck, we even see later Wan Chi Tong even is just like, hmm, very stylish, <laughs> <laughs> and it becomes this like you know this really important uh, you know just like piece that they have. But then it you know it serves a purpose later on. It's not just something like okay they learn from this okay whatever. But then it becomes mm-hmm. something later on that they can use. But you know, I, one of the one of the big things I want to talk about with this episode, and I think that it was the biggest thing that stuck out to me when I revisited this was like, holy crap, these pirates are so like talented, and they're so good at what they do. They mm-hmm. are they are the only ones besides the Yuyan archers who successfully like take Ang down without like really any issue at all. And even the Yuyan archers, like he was like Aang was running from them and was able to like, you know, dodge and everything, but like the pirates came into the camp, they're like, Alright, we're gonna throw this net at you. We've got this whole setup, like we're good to go. We've got you captured. Yeah. <laughs> what does that say about Zuko that <laughs> <laughs> that a group of dirty, greasy, but yet economically understandable pirates have managed to somehow capture the Avatar I and drag them back to a ship. I think it's just because pirates. I think that's yeah. just... Really, is that, is that the hashtag now? Because pirates? Like, that's how we're going to solve all the answers? <laughs> well, why did the cabbage man lose his cabbage? Hashtag because pirates. Because pirates. I mean, you could make that argument. How did Aang live through getting shot by lightning? Hashtag because pirates. Oh, <laughs> that'll work. Um, but that is interesting, actually, that, like... That they they're really like they're very organized and they do this is not the last remember we're not going to go into that that's not really a spoiler but they do appear again later in the uh, you are season. right mm-hmm. so it's like we're not done with like it's like that episode was just the first appearance of them and you know and they're they're they got their they're tight they know what they're doing they're, they're like a really good crew I think uh, yeah I mean any any pirate crew that can amass that number of curios from so many different places i mean they know what they're doing they're doing something right and a suki horn (laughs) (laughs) and a bejeweled monkey (laughs) and a bejeweled monkey but it wasn't for sale it's interesting that you bring that up too uh daniel is that how well that they've been able to operate and it kind of goes into this idea of where they're at kind of in their historical timeline of the avatar world and what it was that enabled 
pirates to be able to successfully do stuff like this and not have kind of like a globalized, you know, like whether it's a coalition or a force to be able to say like, okay, we need to take care of pirates because pirates are a Mm. problem. Uh, very, very much in the way that, you know, in our world they did where everyone, I mean, we still have pirates today, but still, I mean, you're talking about like your classic, like pirates of the Caribbean, like that type of like pirating in like 1700s. Like they were like, okay guys, we really need to deal with this issue because this is, this is becoming a huge problem, but clearly no one's really kind of taking the onus on that. I guess probably because it's also because like they're in the middle of a war and the fire nation is, mm-hmm. you know, and technologically are, superior. Right. This is just, so they'll take whatever they can get. If they see that there's something that's going to work to their benefit. I mean, even Jack Sparrow, who we all love, he's, he's, that's what he's, he is too. If something, if there's something distracting, like everybody else, like, like, you know, the fire nation taking up, it's like, well, we're just going to use this to our advantage and just take what we can. Mm. This is just where my theory for the Pichu monkey steps in. It's just a whole global organization of pirates you just don't deal with the pirates you you just don't take one ship down because there's a whole organization to it it's it's starting to make sense now guys it's starting to make sense <laughs> <laughs> it's all starting to add up next thing we're going to be finding like triangles pyramids with eyes in the middle and everything like oh god this goes so much deeper oh my god <laughs> I'm sure there's, there's so much to this. Who would have known they would put so much effort maybe, into Avatar? Maybe the bejeweled monkey is a sign of the pirate ship like hierarchy. And the, if you have the bejeweled monkey, you're at like the top of the hierarchy. And then there's like other bejeweled animals to lower the hierarchy. Or something oh, like there we go. <laughs> this is great. We could do a whole series on this. We're gonna rewatch the whole series. The whole series, just looking for clues about the underground organization of the pirates. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I love. Well, because you know, if you think about it, if you, you know, and I, I think this is the last. Uh, you know, <laughs> if you think about it, you said it shows up in the desert, right, with like the sandbenders. I mean, they were pretty much pirates. Yeah, they're pirates yeah, of yeah, the desert you're sea. Right. They do. That's exactly. Oh, right. that's so, interesting. So there you go. Oh. Like, <laughs> Oh, it's the Sacred Order of the Pirate Bejeweled Monkey. Oh, <laughs> light bulb. Are, are we done here? Are, are we clear? Are we done here? There's a secret organization of pirates. Are we secret done here? Of the Bejeweled Monkey Pirates. I think Which it's needless to say. The Bejeweled Animals are done to tell us about the hierarchy of the Bejeweled Monkey Pirates. I think I think it's needless to say we have we have cracked this mystery wide open. So oh, uh, what if the jewel monkey is like a sign that you are able to trade freely, even if the curios are acquired through some means that may not or may be legal or illegal at any given period of time, oh my safely gosh. without interruption of the pi- of the fire nation. Oh. Don't forget to breathe. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh man well okay so before we go any farther down this rabbit hole because i seriously think we could probably do an entire episode <laughs> about this. Um, i, I want to talk a little bit about uh getting into um what the point you brought up earlier daniel about how this is one of the first times we get to see the structure and uh the structure to waterbending and how, you know, we talked last time in the episode about King Bumi, how we really see a great demonstration of earthbending in that this is really something we're seeing. Okay, this is, 
this is how this is instructed because we don't meet a waterbending master really until you know much later on in the series well later on in the book one with Paku so this is really kind of Mm -hmm. the first introduction as to okay how do you waterbend how do you take like a move and make that a reality so what were some of your guys thoughts on that with uh how the scroll really kind of introduced um more of the history and the structure that came into bending uh well i mean again i i thought it was amazing and probably one of the key features of the show um but i also really liked how they used kind of like the you know the traditional um like oriental style artwork for it rather than like the modernized art that is in the rest of the show you know it it was more of a it you know it looked like a credible ancient scroll of wisdom that that they had come across yeah, I was gonna say it gives it more that that alone just gave it more depth to the show, right? It just took it it just kept layering on more depth to it, just making it more real. So that seeing that scroll and that sort of that ancient style of Chinese like the calligraphy and everything like that, and just saying like, oh, like somebody made this. There's another, and having that sort of be like a, a spirit to to like just in the spirit of water bending, that this is an ancient thing. It's not just some something that somebody made up and just people have these magical powers. It's like no, this mm. isn't art that has now been passed down through generations and makes the world that much more deep and we're kind of hit with that you know just looking at that scroll i think it's one of the few times too that we really get a sense that you know these arts have been captured in other areas because for a long time we're like we need to find a master we need to find a master and then all of a sudden oh these things are actually documented much like a lot of other things are documented other martial arts and things like that so it's it's kind of getting at that although some stuff may be destroyed, not all of the culture is destroyed too. Yeah. So it also gives mm-hmm. people an idea that maybe there are airbending scrolls out there. Mm. Ooh. That's a really good point. That is interesting. Hmm. Where are the airbending scrolls? <laughs> I'm kind of surprised this didn't set them off on a whole you know, side mission to try to find, <clears throat> oh, we need an earthbending scroll now. And, you know, every time that happens in you know, shows or video games or anything that spawns eight side quests where you have to go find the other scrolls. <laughs> Honestly, I was kind of expecting that to happen here where they're like, oh, well, if we could just find another scroll, we could be more powerful and fight off Zuko or the Fire Lord. But we totally wouldn't need a waterbender master for this. Right? <laughs> but I think but I think that that's the key of having Aang uh, set that from the beginning, from the very first episode of being like, look, Katara, you need to have a master. Because I think, you know, Aang grew up with these incredible airbending masters. He traveled the world and learned from the different uh, instructors from the different air temples. And I think he understood the importance of having someone who can really specifically train you. But at the same time, okay, this is great. You know, you have this scroll where you can really learn from that. And I think we see that with Aang picking it up so quickly. And, you know, even though he gets that, at this at the end of the day, Aang still needs discipline. And he still needs other things to his training that no matter how many scrolls you have, it really takes a master's touch to refine and to right. and general experience to learn from. 
and I think that's where they get to when they leave. <clears throat> they leave there, they have the scroll. Yes, they've learned a little bit from the scroll, but when they get to the northern, um, you know, northern water tribe, I think it really hones in on the power of having a master. But it's again back to the idea that you know it does introduce the the fact that yeah, the Fire Nation destroyed a bunch of stuff. But the interesting part was it didn't destroy all of the cultural relics, which is a little weird if you think about it because. Um, if any spoiler alert, if anyone has not watched uh, Black Panther, mm. like the first thing that um, the one character says is, "Yeah, that's part of your training. You go in, you wipe out any remnants of their culture, their ability, their anything else, and that's how you destroy that whole like civilization." Mm. Yeah, but but see, that, that's also the thing. If this isn't this obviously is an art that goes back hundreds probably thousands of years you just don't just go and wipe everything out because banding is, is so profound in this world everybody knows bending everybody knows what it is so it's not just the water benders that know what water bending is mm-hmm. and, and i think this is that's also where where the score comes in. You just don't wipe out all of the culture. It's it's just no. You just repurpose there's, it. There's plenty of that. There's probably plenty of scholars in the earthbending uh, lands that know uh, waterbending that have studied waterbending that know the I, scores. I don't disagree with what Kip said, but. I think if you look back at like later episodes, for example, when they go to the firebending school, when Anne goes to firebending school, and they're like, "When did uh, Fire Lord Azula take on the air nomad armies?" And he's like, "The air nomads didn't have armies." And he's like, "Oh, you know more than our state-approved history book." Like, mm. I mean, like that's part of it. Is like when you take out a culture, the part of it is is that you're to wipe out any remnants that could actually be deemed as different from what the government says. And like even Zuko didn't understand the importance of understanding other bending techniques until Iroh was like, there are so many different elements and and redirecting it inside your body when he was teaching him lighting bending is very important. And that's part of what I learned from studying the water benders. Like, you know, many people thought Iroh was crazy to like even watch other benders mm-hmm. and not think less of them. I mean, like he always held them at the same standard as him. Yeah, you could go back to even just saying, like, look, if they were just looking to even defeat them, the best way to learn how to defeat your enemies is to learn how they even work. If they wanted to consider, the, I'm sure even the Fire Nation would consider, like, the waterbenders their enemies. I mean, it would be kind of stupid for them to destroy that. But also, like, it ended up in the hands of the pirates, you know, so maybe the, you know, the, the fire, the fire nation didn't get to him. Like the, that's like, I think that's like the pirates are just sort of hauling everything they can probably because they know that it might otherwise get destroyed. Mm. And like, well, if we can make a couple bucks off of it, then that would be great. <laughs> you know, so. mm. Well, I, I think it's interesting too, when uh, Zuko finally confronts Ozai in Day of Black Sun and has that moment where he says, we were grown up taught that we were sharing our greatness with the world what a beautiful lie that was it's like the world doesn't want what we have they are like terrified of us and it is this idea that i think that if ozai and the other fire the past fire lords had their way they would make it so that it was all just fire nation and they would try to kind of wipe all of that out 
And I think the recklessness that you see sometimes in firebenders, and I think, you know, getting into Zhang Zhang the deserter and his fear of what he saw with not only firebending as a bending style, but a lot of the people in the Fire Nation was that this recklessness is so destructive and it's so hard to heal from. And I think the best example we see of that is when they go to Wan Tong's library and they go to the Fire Nation section, Zhao burned it all. That's his own culture. But he was so worried about other people gaining an advantage on him or who knows what. But I mean, like the fact that he destroyed all of that and I mean, he clearly just did not care. Because, I mean, that was so much of just Zhao being lost in this moment and that anger and everything. And who knows what else the motivations were. But at the end of the day, he destroyed it all. And that was his own culture. I had to reflect on that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm like, like deep, Colin. <laughs> well, I mean, that's where Avatar takes like a really weird side note is like there are two ways to actually take out a culture. Like one is to destroy it like the Air Nomads, like completely destroy it. Yeah. And the other side note is, you know, like Iroh kind of hints to it a little bit, but like part of the art of war is like not just knowing yourself, but knowing thy enemy. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like it, it balances the two ways that if like you were to win or strategically fight, you have to think about like either you can go head on and just take out everything. Like Azula tends to be very much like that. Jal tends to be very much like that. Or you could be like Iroh and try to be strategic or, um, you know, he like he yells at Zuko. He's like, "You never think things through." Like that's that's a big point to the whole series. Almost hmm. is like thinking things through. Yeah, yeah. Well, what a different what a different story this would have been if Iroh was going to be Fire Lord and not Ozai. Hmm. Like that's a whole. You have to know it's a whole other avenue. But oh like, my god, we could like have a whole episode about like <laughs> alternative history for the Fire yeah. Nation. Oh man. Yeah. That's a great idea. I'll definitely uh, keep that. That would be interesting. (laughs) So one of the other things I want to talk about with the the waterbending scroll, um, and I think it's really interesting that we really see um, from Katara this this sense of jealousy and seeing that really for the first time, I I, want to say. I don't think that we've seen an example of that yet, but maybe we've seen kind of you know, where she can get more heated and passionate about everything. But, you know, this moment of, you know, here she is, she has the opportunity to learn something, but she lets this jealousy over Aang's just natural abilities get in the way of her really taking the most out of this scroll. And it really becomes kind of the core kind of lesson for this episode too, is just like, hey, if you're, you can't let, the progress of other people get in the way of your own because you are just going to kind of destroy everything along the way. And that's kind of what happens. The more she gets lost in that anger and frustration and jealousy, it's what leads to her getting captured by the pirates and all of that that kind of leads in. But what was it like for you guys kind of reflecting on uh, that for her as a character, especially knowing where she ends up and how she develops as a character? It's it's actually if if you think about it the the way you describe it it's actually a pretty dark episode for Katara because not only is she very jealous and, and 
even angry at Aang's talent. She goes as far as stealing. And that obviously, morality-wise, it's it's definitely a, a rather big step to go as far as stealing something. You know, she's so caught up in having, at that point, you know, better than Aang even. It's, it's almost like she has to be better than Aang. That's kind of the vibe she's giving. You know, Sue goes for stealing stuff, you know, even though it's pirates. Mm-hmm. That's now that you touch on that, that's actually another reason why I really like this episode is because to me, it kind of seems like a big turning point in the series um, where they go to more of, yeah, I don't want to say a gray morality for the heroes, but they definitely start to touch on a lot more uh, morally ambiguous kind of situations because, um, like, the first episode, they go from, you know, riding penguins and having fun in the water tribe. And now we're, you know, stealing, but it's a bad thing to do. But it's from pirates, so it's kind of okay. But it's still stealing. And uh, it's, it seems to take a step in a whole other direction and sets up a lot of the uh, more mature themes that we see a lot later on in the series. Um but then back. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. You you go ahead. Sorry. I was just saying back in the issue of Katara kind of throwing a fit. Um, I mean, you you kind of have to think she's used to being the only bender. Like there was no other ones in her tribe for you know as long as she knows she's been the only waterbender that she's ever interacted with. So she's kind of used to being the top dog, and then Aang comes along and is so naturally talented with airbending and then he picks up all these waterbending moves in like two minutes and you know it, it kind of disrupts her whole world view and her perception of herself and kind of lights a fire under her to get practicing and get better at what she does yeah i definitely agree with that just just what you guys were touching on um it, it adds that I like that you said it's a, a adds more gray to it because um, the most interesting kinds of characters are I, I find gray characters and that they're not Katara is such a like a, an admirable and she's brave like um, and motherly and type where she's just like so so loyal and so good and she is I like seeing this other side of her because again it gives her more depth and in, insight mm-hmm. into her. and she's the only waterbender that she knows of you know in, in the southern tribe and she's just and she had and finding an ancient scroll from her people is is just she rightfully in, in her mind she's righteous to just just to take it it belongs to my culture anyway you know to see how her how she's justifying everything in our head and we can kind of like we think about scenarios where we've been in that where we justify doing something and 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 it's just it adds a whole level of maturity and depth to her character even if maybe what she does seems sort of immature in the way that she behaves towards ang um but it makes her more interesting actually i didn't think i thought guitar was interesting i thought everybody was interesting um but you watch that development it's what they it's like what they did with Sokka, making him just seem like an oaf or, or just the comic relief in the first episode or two, and then seeing how he's sort of the, he doesn't have bending, so he uses logic and reason and, and scientific kind of, just the planning kind of thing. Um, so Qatar a little more depth, I think, was super smart and, and very, very key. And I see why it hooked people in for this mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. I'll say watching it with the five-year-old, um, one of the interesting parts of this is that she struggled. Like, she gets the, it, it, so remember, in a child's mind, Right and wrong is pretty simple. Like, we don't take things that aren't ours. 
And if we do, that's bad. Um, but like, even she felt a little confused. Mm. Like she asked me, she's like, mom, I, mommy, I, I know that we're not supposed to take things that aren't ours, but they're pirates. Didn't they take it properly first? And I'm like, you know, this is a really tough thing to get to, <laughs> but you should still not steal things. <laughs> Even if it's cultural misappropriation, probably not a good idea. <laughs> and she's like, she's like, but they're pirates, so it's okay. And I'm like, oh, God, got a trainer. Um, I mean, so, yeah, it, I get where Zara is coming from, and I think it did show a lot more depth, but it also started, I think it took the series, and I think, you know, Kip hit on this a little earlier, but I think it took the series to a completely new level, because at first, like, the first few episodes you watch it, it's, it's a very much, like, it's got a little more lighthearted theme to it, yes, there's Zuko chasing them for his honor, and all this other stuff, but then you get to, um, you get to a later part, and once you get there, it's like this episode specifically, it's like it starts to deal with more like of that coming of age themes. And this is one of the things that eventually we could have a whole episode on. But essentially that I believe Avatar was never really so much as like the story of the last airbender. But it was a coming of age story of not just Aang and Katara and Sokka, but also Zuko. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And finding your way and like really making those decisions on who you become and what you think is right and wrong versus yeah. what people tell you so it's kind of um you know as a parent it was kind of weird watching it this time around because it's like you know when i was watching it a long time ago i thought it was just funny and i was like oh yeah fire taha yeah pig it and i'm like you know <laughs> how do i explain this to a five-year-old uh well well i think it's interesting too because it, you know talking about uh, this episode and Jet being some of the most frequent episodes that they aired on television to kind of get people hooked in is, you know, you show an episode that a lot of people can identify with. Because when have we ever not had a point in all of our lives where we, you know, might have been jealous about somebody, whether we were like, you know, young kids, like playing like a sport and like one of our siblings is better than we are, or, you know, even noticing that, you know, someone is doing better on a test in school, or if you're an older adult and you're working a new job and someone young comes in and they are just like flying through the training that took you months and months to be able to really get I mean, it's this very human reaction to feel yeah. that, and they really tap into that so well. And again, it gets back to this idea that Avatar is just so great at its accessibility for so many different ages, because so much of it is just humanity. And I think that this struggle between Aang and Katara and how they resolve it, too, is pretty amazing. Because they really have to come to terms with it. And at the end of the episode, Katara really, she owns up and says, like, I really messed up on that. I really let this, you know, kind of take me over. And it sounds like, you know, she kind of has that, like, half-assed apology, like, halfway through the episode before she, like, steals away in the middle of the night and tries waterbending again. But, you know, at Mm -hmm. the end of just this really open, honest moment while they're flying on Appa up in the sky. I mean, those are some of my favorite moments, honestly, from season one. Like, at 
the end of the episode when they're all just kind of like, wow, we went through this ordeal and now let's, we're kind of reflecting on it. And it's such a great opportunity for them to be like, okay, it's just the three of us. We have to be honest. We have to be trusting because we are all we have in this crazy adventure that we're going on right now. And then in true soccer style, he pulls the scroll out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, of course. Cause if you're, I mean, if you have like that opportunity to like, you know, have that, biting uh wit with your sibling it's like you gotta go for it i mean that's so much of who he is <laughs> and i hope oh, we yeah. learn something here <laughs> um so, so the last I have a question oh yeah um, before we get off topic on this like idea is that you know how come i know katara is jealous of ang at this point and everything like that don't get me wrong and ang learns these moves very quickly from a scroll mind you from a scroll but, but how come when they go to the north pole all of a sudden like katara is like massive leagues ahead of him and like can fight Paku without problem. And he's like, eh, like, and he's learning from a master. Well, I I think it gets back to what, you know, what I was saying earlier about the idea of discipline and responsibility, because I think that, you know, that's one of the biggest differences between Katara and Aang is that Katara has had to be responsible for, so many people in her village, even though when Hakoda left and told Sokka, like, listen, you need to look after the village. We see from the very first episode that Katara is at her wits end with Sokka and just being like, I have been like doing so much. I've been putting so much on my back since mom died. And, you know, she has had to deal with very real, tangible responsibility. And I think when you have to do that, there comes a lot of discipline with that. And I think that as she trains and continues to grow, she's able to apply a lot of that and do it in a more effective way. Whereas Aang's just like, oh, cool, I can do this move now. It's just like, oh, well, cool. There's like this, you know, lemur over there. And like, you know, it just, it's like very much still kind of lost in this very young adolescent mind that's filled with innocence. And, you know, we really don't see Aang get broken of that truly i think until the end of season or the end of book two when he's shot full of lightning and he realizes like holy crap i can't just kind of dance through this like this is real Mm -hmm. and this is really dangerous but i don't know what do you guys think yeah well i think that makes that's a pretty good point Mm -hmm. and and kind of going back to this being a turning episode i think this is kind of the point where she really realizes that you know, A, she's she's actually going to have to work because, you know, this is playing for all the cookies and, you know, they're not just messing around in the village anymore. I mean, they got abducted by pirates that were going to kill them. And uh, I think that was kind of a wake-up call for her. And um, I think also a lot of what she learned from kind of competing with Aang, you know, about the very fundamentals of waterbending um, that a lot of it comes from, you know, a, a core serenity and I don't want to sound like a Jedi, but I mean, she has to, you know, center herself and be, you know, keep a calm and a kind of methodical mindset in order to really progress in her waterbending. And I think this, this was kind of the, the opening point where she was like, oh, okay, I, I see what's going on here, rather than just throwing her arms around and cracking icebergs in half. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it also gets back to, you know, this is part maybe why partly they wait to really reveal the Avatar until they come of a certain age. Yeah. Mm. Um, because of the discipline issue is that like with, you know, with this age, you, you're still maturing, you're still figuring out things. And like, again, like I said, the story is kind of more of a coming age story, but it's a very hastened coming age because they have to like grow up so fast during wartime. It's almost like Harry Potter in a way, which is kind of weird. Mm. Um, gosh, why is it in our, in our, in our like generation, we have like Harry Potter, Hunger Games, Avatar, things where kids literally have to grow up way faster than they probably should normally have to grow up. Mm. Um, I mean, and maybe, and not to sound too philosophical here, let me get my pipe. Hold on. <laughs> those, that blows bubbles in my... I, hold on, I need props. All right, good, we're good. All right. Uh, um, perhaps this is a reflection. How old are... Colin, you remember how old Mike and Brian are again? At the time that they were making this, I think they They're were... They were in their 20s, They were late 20s, early 30s, I think. So they would, have, they would have been about roughly in the same age group as my age group, where, you know... Everyone I went to high school with, like a lot of the guys I went to high school with, signed up after 9 11 mm. to go fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, like, you know, my I feel like that was a huge turning point because that really shocked a lot of us to wake up to what was going on in the world. And I remember uh, there was a, like, I didn't ever watch the news until after that day and really understand politics and try to get into it. So, I mean, maybe that's a reflection of the culture, period. Like, in wartime, like, kids don't really aren't kids and i think you see that in cora when we go way forward and all of a sudden like tenzin's kids are very carefree they're very like you know they're very much like more about what they're doing and what they like but they didn't really get that mm. these kids so i don't know that, that's a good point oh. yeah no that's i agree that's mm. definitely a really really good point on all that. right i'm gonna go put my type and stuff away real quick hold on <laughs> Philosophical <laughs> Susan is done now. Good. <laughs> so uh, the the last thing I, w- I want to touch on uh, for this episode is I want to dig in a little bit about uh, talk about Zuko and Iroh um, because they're obviously the other half of this episode. Um, you know, so much of the <laughs> the impetus of them going to the docks is because Iroh is missing a white lotus tile. And I remember when we were, when we were trying, we actually tried uh, doing this episode like two weeks ago and we couldn't make it happen. But, um, I remember, uh, Daniel, you, uh, sent me a message and saying like, you know, if we, if I can't make it, like we need to bring up the fact that this can't just be a coincidence that yeah. Iroh is this going to town. This is one of town. my pet theories. <laughs> All right. So, well, Daniel, let, let's, let's hear this theory. I want to, I want to, want you to Uh-oh. dig into this. So... When he's talking to Zuko on the boat right after he commits mutiny and changes course, um, he's talking about how he's missing this one tile that's absolutely, you know, the hinge piece of his whole Pai Show strategy. And he talks about it's the White Lotus tile that a lot of people just dismiss out of hand. And, you know, it's a useless piece, but it's it's the one that allows him to do what he does. So, I mean, even though he doesn't quite say it outright, that makes me think that it's a pretty common piece that, you know, everybody has in their pie show set at home, but they don't use because it's useless. 
So he has to go to these merchants and try to find one. Given that mindset, I find it difficult to believe that not a single merchant in this bustling port town didn't have this common pie show tile. So really, I feel like this was, well, not probably, possibly um, a kind of a cover for him meeting with his White Lotus contacts to try and and get information about, you know, the state of the world and how the resistance was going in the Earth Kingdom and stuff like that. Just because, I mean, it's, I find it difficult to believe that nobody has this Pai Show tile. And then at the end, he's like, oh, it was in my pocket all along. It was in my pocket all along. It's the greatest oh, so, <laughs> Just given all of those things stacking up on top of each other, I, I feel like the the White Lotus Pai Show tile was not actually a Pai Show tile. It had to have been him doing something with the White Lotus Society. Hmm. I think that's extremely plausible, too, because of just to kind of keep in mind, the episodes like before this are uh, the Winter Solstice episodes and how much crazy stuff happened with there. The fact that the Fire Sages did not support the Avatar and that, you know, now we are seeing wholesale the world itself uh, you know, the Fire Nation is going to any lengths to be able to stop the Avatar. And it isn't like even these typically neutral parties are now throwing their hat in the ring. Mm-hmm. But uh, sorry, that... Kip, go ahead. Um, oh, you, you guys happily see me. Uh... <laughs> um, it, w- while we're on an episode of uh, uh, Crazy Theories, what if it wasn't a coincidence that they came specifically to uh, this village to find a White Lotus town. Um, what if Iroh is actually also tasked by the White Lotus to sort of protect the Avatar? Because hmm. every time Iroh pops up, things just don't go seem to go right for whoever is trying to capture the Avatar. Well, <laughs> I'm here's also crazy theory build on Kip's crazy theory real quick. What if... What if, Kip... Remember, Ira's been to the spirit world. He's had a spirit world journey, right? Right. And so what if, like... You're right. Like, what if part of Ira's mission as a Grand Master of the White Lotus is to protect the Avatar, but not necessarily to protect the Avatar, but to fulfill the destiny, which requires Zuko to fulfill his side of the destiny by making things balanced and right with the avatar, given what happened was the fire Lord literally just killing off the avatar. So he has to balance it, like bring balance, almost I mean, like bringing balance back to the force. We, we, we uh, obviously at the end of book three, we learned that the white Lotus is everywhere, right? It's, it's a global organization. This, this is going to be a recurring thing for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> global organizations. Are you trying uh, to say it's, it's like written house? Is that where we're going here? I'm, I'm sorry, what? Uh, it's a timeless reference to written house. <laughs> um, so, with the White Lotus being all across the globe, it's it's not that hard to imagine that in a sense they would be trying to keep track of the Avatar. That they would be trying to do their best to keep the Avatar safe and you know not Jim 
steer them in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the other good point uh, about all of this too is that Iro wants, if you actually, because I, I went back and looked at it, when they're playing Pi Show, there is a white lotus piece on the board. Mm-hmm. So not only that, but it's like, even if it was the other players, that I think that supports your theory, Daniel, that, I mean, it is a fairly common piece. And that, yep. you know, if he really needed it, he could have been like, hey, will you give me your white lotus tile, please? <laughs> but, Especially if nobody else uses it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really think that just the timing of it all and him going in and after the winter solstice and things are really starting to pick up, I, I think it's just like, okay, he's like, all right, we've been at sea. We've been chasing the avatar here. Now I need to find out what else is going on in the world because it definitely seems like some puzzle pieces are moving because the, mm-hmm. the sages are no longer supporting like the, you know, the fire Lord, well, you know, knows full well that the avatar is back. Not only do you just hear the accounts from, you know, you hear the accounts from Zuko, but you're also hearing, you know, from Zhao and all of these other people who are, you have seen him in the flesh. And now this is a very real tangible problem. And Iroh kind of checking the pulse of the world and seeing like, okay, where are we at with things? Oh, crazy theory. What if the monkey is a signal for the for the white lotus for them to exchange messages? Because remember, it's in the bar. Oh, it's in the oh. it's where Iroh goes to meet the white lotus guy who's playing Pi Show. Wow. This is amazing. So he knows that the pirates, because he goes in there and he sees the monkey, can get a message to the other white lotus members without anyone looking because they're Pirates. Hashtag because pirates. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I think I think we're just gonna have to do like a team effort into researching this whole PGO monkey white lotus global pirate organization thing. Right. And then we we just like in you know five years or so when we finally have it all figured out, we just have to make sure that uh, Comic Con we meet up Mike and Brian. <laughs> Just confront Mike and Brian at Comic Con, like guys, we we, we know, figured, we, we we know about the monkey. We know. <laughs> they just drop everything and run out of the room. <laughs> or or they're like, wow, that's a really good idea. Why didn't we actually like do that? We're like, oh, right. <laughs> this is you guys have lives. You could be seriously you're looking into a bejeweled monkey and a pie showpiece. <laughs> Hey, it's your world. We're just living in it. <laughs> I do. I do think there is, though, that that credibility to um, the White Lotus being again, it's a secret, very uh, tight knit society of, of very, very masterful benders that are out there to protect. And to th- the fact that I, I definitely think that theory is very, very plausible. Um, and not not gonna give spoilers away with Cora, but we people for for Cora that that also becomes prevalent in just even like getting in touch with her mm-hmm. when she's tar. Mm-hmm. And how the, we rely on the white, white lotus for that sort of thing. So this, they're very, very key to have to make sure things do maintain balance with the avatar. His avatar is ba- is the balance between all the all the different elements. So I think that's really a really really interesting theory. And Iro, you can already tell he's got. Um, you can you kind of you can just feel it with him that he's just got a um, ulterior motive, but like a good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. 
Uh, all right, so I, I want to kind of wrap things up with uh, final thoughts on the episode. Um, you guys just kind of have any other final reflections based on your uh, viewing and what we've uh, talked about today? I mean, again, let's uh, let's try not to get too uh, lost <laughs> in these rabbit holes of theories because they have been amazing, but oh my gosh, we could seriously probably talk for hours about these. <laughs> well, Don, and here I was just quickly clicking through the whole episode, just trying to see if I could, you know, figure out something else <laughs> to find another theory. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> you had your chance, Kip. You had your chance. The jeweled monkey wins. Did, did we discuss yet that the Cabbage Man might be part of the White Lotus? <laughs> we allude to this every episode that the Cabbage Man is possibly, a, is like literally an uh, acolyte of the White Lotus or something. And he's just a secret messenger hawk or something for them. Or, I don't know. Because he's everywhere. Or maybe Speaking he's trying to get holes, We don't want to dive down. That's the point. He is everywhere. And for some reason, he always stands in front of the avatar. He's always there to block the bad guys from reaching the avatar anyone ever really i mean yes and it goes back to the iris theory maybe the cabbage man is the one sending messages through the bejeweled monkey to iro about the whereabouts of the avatar so <laughs> oh my god the and then <laughs> through the bejeweled monkey via the spirit so, world through another monkey, bejeweled monkey bejeweled monkey white lotus iro avatar spirit location. world you cannot spirit leave world. out the spirit world. Oh yeah, spirit world. Other other monkey. I mean, oh, good lord! <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. We totally hijacked your closing spots there for yeah another theory. Sorry. Hashtag bejeweled monkey. <laughs> oh my gosh! Because Look pirates. This episode has because sparked. pirates. Look what this episode has sparked for people. Like it was like a, a key interest for 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 you guys just to like even start watching the show and all these even all these little theories are sort of like making that world much more deeper and interested in what's actually going on. What do these guys mean? What are these motives? What is what's happening? You know, I think it. I think that's why it's such a great episode. Hmm. There's so much detail and so much to like kind of dig around and figure out and learn. On top of the reality was all about a waterbending scroll on a pirate ship that Katara steals. The pirates want back. Zuko hires pirates to go after Aang. They go after like this is all the topical surface. Somehow we've managed to turn this into a bigger conspiracy X Files theory episode <laughs> that I want to believe. Mike, Mike and Brian are gonna run up on the podcast and they're like, no. No, guys, no, no. <laughs> hang, hang on, no. Here. Let's pump the brakes. Just, no. Let's pause for a second and say, if Mike and Brian want to come on the podcast and argue this with us, we are more than welcome to have them. <laughs> just that. Yeah. Open invitation. Yes. Open yes. invitation. Even Dante Bosco to come on and argue the Zuko stuff. But we're all about that. Absolutely. <laughs> um, if, if we're gonna do that, we're gonna do a good. We're gonna get Mark Hamill on here. Mm. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, all right. But well, anyways, yes. Back to Colin's actual question. <laughs> 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 we just destroyed closing remarks. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, just uh, any any other closing thoughts from you guys? I mean, in all seriousness, about all of these conspiracy theories that we've come up with, it just kind of goes back to what I was saying in the beginning about the intricacy of the writing and the attention to detail that these guys put into the show, like even for the possibility for fans to be like, oh, maybe this happens because this is a thing 
you know, 20 episodes down the road and this keeps happening and we know that this organization wants to do this. So maybe this is actually happening. And it's just, it's really amazing because there's so many, you know, shows that don't do that. Like they'll present one dimension of interesting details and enough to get people interested in an episode, but then they just move on from there. Whereas, you know, in Avatar, they're notorious for, carrying everything through and setting things up for the future and fulfilling previous story arcs with um, satisfying and um, sufficient endings to satisfy people. Mm-hmm. And I think a, a good point to, uh, to keep in mind too is that with a lot of these episodes, they have a whole team of writers that they work with. But you notice that on the episodes where there's some major... Uh, tonal shifts and uh, big plot points that come in usually Mike and Brian will be the specific writers for that episode Mm -hmm. and they are the writers for the waterbending scroll so I think that you know it's definitely something to keep in mind you know with all these theories but especially just kind of talking about I love that we brought up that this is kind of this huge stepping stone for Katara and the journey that she goes on um, and how it's building towards that really beautiful arc that, you know, really kind of starts to resolve towards the end of book one in her confrontation with Paku and um, the waterbending master, those episodes and everything. And yeah, I mean, it, it it is a really solid episode. And I think that, like you said, Daniel, just from the intricacies with the writing and with the world building and with these great lessons with Katara, you know, experiencing the jealousy and all of this just in plus pirates, all of it puts together as such a great formula for an episode people can love. Hashtag because pirates. (laughs) Awesome. I mean, tell me what doesn't make pirates better. Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates. Monkeys. <laughs> Avatar. Pirates. Actually, you're right. And in Pirates of the Caribbean, there are monkeys. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, imagine how boring Pirates of the Caribbean would be without the pirates. I mean, <laughs> it would just be a guy named Turner basically sharpening his swords and practicing with them more than many times a day, and he would need a girlfriend, though. <laughs> oh, man. Stuff girl, though. All right. Well, that's going to wrap things up uh, for today. Um, but uh, guys, thank you so much uh, for uh, uh, joining uh, joining us all today. Uh, again, our co-hosts were uh, Daniel, Susan, Casey, and Kyle. Uh, thank you all for uh, joining today and for all of those wonderfully crazy and amazing uh, theories. And uh, a big thank you to the listeners uh, for, again, supporting us uh, with this new venture. Um, this has just been so much fun. Uh, kind of you know talking about all of this and I think the fact that we get to take all of the context not only uh, having seen the show in its entirety but also revisiting it years later has just been such a wonderful experience and we're coming up with new insights because we talked about this episode before in the old podcast but I know that I mean this is all great new wonderful stuff and it's just been such a wild ride uh, to revisit all of this and uh, to have you guys on board. Stay tuned uh, for the next episode. We're releasing these every two weeks on Monday. And until next time, let us leave. Bleeding hot monkeys. All right. And that concludes our third episode of the Legend of Portal Cast. Hey, 
you know, you've made it to the end of this episode, so thank you. Seriously, uh, from the bottom of my heart, uh, we really, really appreciate uh, you giving this podcast a chance, and I really hope you're uh, digging our discussion. Um, but one of the biggest things that we really want to include and that we did in our old podcast uh, is our listener engagement. Uh, we really want to hear your thoughts, uh, either reactions uh, to the discussion that we're having or suggested topics uh, on what we can talk about next. Uh, so you can do that in a variety of different ways. Uh, you can either email us at legendofportalcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on our various social media platforms. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, we have a page there, Legend of Portalcast. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram at The Legend of Portalcast, or you can tweet at us at Portalcast Pod on Twitter. Well, where else would you tweet at us? I don't know. Maybe through the Cabbage Merchant or somebody else. Maybe through the White Lotus. Maybe through the Bejeweled Monkey. Hashtag because pirates. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>